Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. And you are watching AM to DM. Okay, uh, let's be honest, y'all. There's a lot of trash out there in the news this morning. Y'all know what time it is. We're going to get to it in a second and maybe take some of that trash out. Mm. But first... Let's start with some joy. A little joy. Let's start with some just love and admiration. John Legend, bless you, sir. Mm. Yashar Ali tweeted, the singer has joined a very exclusive club, EGOT. He is now the 13th person in history to competitively win an Oscar, Tony, Grammy, and Emmy Award. Other EGOTs include Rita Moreno, Whoopi Goldberg, Mel Brooks. Also joining him tonight, Andrew Lloyd Webber. The 14th EGOT. So many EGOTs. That is very good company. EGOTs just everywhere. EGOT, 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 literally not everywhere. It's just like 14 of them. So, <laughs> I guess. Here is a fun fact. Yes. He won that Emmy, that Tony, and that Oscar, John Legend, in just four years. He's been on a run. Those are really He's good four years. Run. I'm going to have to stop referring to him as uh, Chrissy Teigen's husband. Oh, you're you going to let him like, have a moment? Just my, I don't know. Maybe just for a 24-hour period? Yeah, we'll give him this. Just for a 24-hour well, period? I'll, I'll allow it. When I think of EGOT, my brain immediately goes to, like, GOAT. You know, I think I get those sometimes, maybe little oh, greatest of all time. I did find myself when reading this morning, but you know, waiting for my coffee to can I did say ego. ego. I was saying egoat. Egoat. A few times, uh, which. I like that, a little mashup. I also think of egrets. Basically, my, I, animals are just on my mind this morning. That's all I mean. But let's pay homage on the timeline in honor of his egot win. Tweet us your favorite John Legend moments and performances. So many to choose from. That's true. Let us know using the hashtag AM to Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay, he did that. Mm, he did. did you watch it? Yeah, of course. All right. All all right. All right. Well, that's great and lovely. <laughs> End of joy. <laughs> I'm stealing myself. Let's talk about Serena Williams. Mm. Uh, listen, if you've been on Twitter this morning, I'm sure you've seen this cartoon from Mark Knight in Australia uh, this morning. My tune in today's Herald Sun on Serena Williams. I just... Racist! Trash. Racist! Ashy. Racist! Unhelpful. Racist. Unproductive. Racist. Australia, what is going on? Children, what is going on? Get your act together, Australia. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous. Osaka is not blonde. <laughs> like, it's just all of it. It's, we're not even, we're not even. Yeah. Um, I just feel, I've been, I have been, I've been surprised mm. by how strongly I have felt so About here's the thing. Over the weekend, I saw you taking to the mm -hmm. timeline with your frustration, yeah. with your sorrow. Mm -hmm. So what was this weekend like for you? Um, I have to admit, I actually ended up crying. I, I, I was actually like, just like, are you really feeling it? I was like, yeah, I am. Um, one, uh, it breaks my heart that someone as brilliant as her, not just the best athlete in tennis, but one of the best athletes alive right now, mm. um, her industry doesn't love her the way it seems we do. Right. Um, and, and I would argue, in fact, you know, and I, and, and I think there's something when you're watching um, people of color or other people kind of break through, there's this like, see, we're good enough, like this sense of proving oneself that you don't need to do, right? Um, and just to see that it, it, it's never going to happen. I don't think they are ever going to give her her flowers in the way that we see in other industries, to talk about John Legend getting his EGOT, seeing him appreciate it for his excellence. It, it just frustrates me. And to know that that is absolutely connected to the everyday experiences of women, and black women in particular, all around the world, including Naomi Osaka, by the way. Wait, wait, yeah, to see that moment kind of become about something else, this thing that should be something that she worked towards her whole life, that yeah. should be this incredibly, incredibly high moment yeah. in her career. And I think you're absolutely right to see, I saw many women of color taking to the timeline to also vent their frustration. And when they've had these moments of miscommunication, of not being allowed to be angry, it was just so, 
uh, disheartening. Mm -hmm. Disheartening is the word I'm going to use to see. Well, here's a tweet from The Atlantic. An unbelievable moment at the U.S. Open shows how unnecessary penalties punish two women of color, both at the top of their game. Jillian B. White writes. Jillian, a senior editor at The Atlantic, joins us now. Jillian, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us and for your excellent piece because it kind of helped me breathe a bit. All right, here's a tweet from novelist Tiari Jones. Went to bed thinking about Serena, woke up thinking about Serena. I had the same experience. I woke mm -hmm. up over the weekend sad and I was like, what's wrong? And then I remembered Serena. So why has this incident in particular felt so uniquely potent, perhaps even painful uh, to watch unfold? Yeah, so I think when you take a look at that court and then you take a look at that award ceremony, what you saw were two women of color, as I wrote, at the top of their game, crushing it, doing something amazing and historic. And one of them, Serena, looks devastated and angry. And the other one, 20-year-old Naomi Osaka, who just won, is in tears. And this is happening not because they had some sort of fight or they had some sort of drama, but because during the course of play, the umpire decided to punish Serena for violations that some people thought were questionable or punish her in ways that they thought were questionable. And the thing that ended up happening is that you took away the joy of this moment from the winner. You took away the feeling of being defeated, but fairly from Serena. And from both of these people, you took away this sense of celebration and joy of where they were and how far they've come. And then you saw what women of color have to do for each other all the time. They have to get through their personal devastation and loss and comfort each other mm -hmm. and say, we're gonna make it through this together. Yeah, we're gonna make it through this together. After your piece went live, you tweeted this. If you're trying to say that race or gender is of no consequence, go for it. But maybe don't send me a tirade full of wildly racist and sexist commentary, supposedly in support of that argument. Some of you all are out here telling on yourselves. So Jillian, what has your experience been like since you published your piece? Well, first of all, I. I mean, I should have known, but I am surprised by the number of people who are filled with hate for Serena Williams, um, which I also think is interesting because these people are tennis fans and the Williams sisters have brought more attention, more love, more excitement to tennis than there's been, I think, in generations. But yet people do not want to let them be themselves. People do not want to accept them. They do not want to accept their level of intensity. They don't want to accept any of it. So the thing that I was getting back was a lot of talking about how Serena is the worst, how she is a child, how she is the person who ruined it for everyone. And then on top of that, a layering of sexist and racist remarks, which, as I said, if that's the way that you're going to argue the fact that this has nothing to do with race or gender, you're just telling me that it has everything to do with race and gender. Yeah, hello, hello. Um, I am. I have to admit as well, uh, Jillian, I'm always a bit surprised, like tweeting something that I think, you know, that isn't a very controversial point, like she's one of the greatest athletes alive. My mentions explode. Like yeah, it's just- don't like, want to hear it. Totally. So what are your thoughts? I mean, we talked about that ridiculously offensive and unnecessary comic um, from the Herald Sun, the New York Post over the weekend, the way they covered it. What are your thoughts on how the how it's been reported on? So I think a lot of this has to do with the way people deal with women's rage and more specifically, the rage of black women. You know, Serena, the things that she has gone through to get where she is, the level of play that she gives you every time she's on the court, how can she not be intense? 
You know this about her. She's an athlete at the top of her game. She's one of the best of all time. Of course she is intense. And thus, of course, during one of the biggest matches of her life, as she's trying to make this historic comeback, when somebody gives her a violation, she's going to be serene about it. She's going to be really angry. And I think the difference here isn't whether or not that type of behavior, whether or not smashing a racket and yelling at it, um, whether or not that's good or bad. I think the question here is, are those punishments and violations applied similarly across the spectrum of gender and race. And I think when you look at it, it isn't. It is not, yeah. I think that's absolutely correct. Absolutely, well, lest I just start screaming into the screen now, just thinking about this, um, listen to it here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jillian. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, I, again, that intensity. Yeah. How can you get mad at athletes for intensity? That's I, Anyways, Twitter, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on Serena, Naomi, Ooh. the U.S. Open? Let us know using the hashtag AM2, don't punish intensity. Don't punish intensity mm. or excellence. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's just a bit of the trash. we got a few more bags to kick to the curb. More explosive reporting from Ronan Farrow and The New Yorker over the weekend. Here's a great tweet from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend star Rachel Bloom. We love her. She tweeted, as an employee of CBS, I would just like to say that Les Moonves should be fired without getting a fucking dollar. The actions described in this article are those of sexual assault and shame on anyone else in the corporation who knew about his crimes. Keeping an eye on the money, New York Times media reporter Edmund Lee said Les Moonves could still get $120 million in possible severance package pending the investigation into sexual harassment claims. Edmund joins us now. Good morning, Edmund. Morning. Hi, thank you so much for being for us with us. Um, sure. How likely is it that Les Moonves will, in fact, get millions of dollars in severance? So the fact, you know, to be clear, first of all, CBS is a public company. So anytime the company ends up having to make big payouts like this, $120 million, they have to let public shareholders know. So that's going to factor into how they make this decision. Of course, it's based on what this pending investigation reveals, if they find him culpable or at least close enough that like, you know what, you, your behavior here was not above board and you, you sort of left a lot of things out in terms of information to us. So you're getting zero. So there is a distinct possibility it ends up being zero given the, the, the public outcry over this. At the same time, you know, given his history with the company, he's been there a long time. Um, he's pre pretty friendly with some of the remaining board members. You know, there's a chance he still gets something out of it. Mm. He still gets something out of it. Wow. So what can you yeah. tell us, Edmund, about these new accusations? So this, it was an explosive second story from The New Yorker uh, on Sunday night where six more women came forward uh, by name, accusing Les Moonves over the decades of, of basically physical assault of, you know, which got very, very nasty. And in one instance, one of the women actually went to the police and filed a report. Now, after all that, what we, and that happened fairly recently, you know, the, there's still questions that remain over what Les knew and when and how he alerted the board of CBS. That's where we're, we're trying to understand, you know, the, where CBS itself as a company, as a board as well, you know, where they sort of kind of skirted the line in terms of just not acting properly or not acting quickly enough. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's incredibly, incredibly bad, not just for the company, but, you know, just the state of affairs with, within the entertainment industry. Right. As someone pointed out this morning, this is like the second time in just a few months that CBS employee Nora O'Donnell has had to comment on men at her yeah. own company, you know, having these allegations. What has Moonves said about these allegations? So he's, you know, he's publicly said the, 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 the allegations are untrue. He, he admits to having 
relations with a number of these women. Uh, he says they're all consensual. I think the key part, though, that he does push back against is that he's never retaliated. Um, and that's that's an aspect of, you know, that should be made clear to to, you know, to the public at large. It's one thing if there's sort of issues around sort of how these relationships ran, but given his stature, given his position, what all these women are saying is that he retaliated sometimes physically, but also professionally, because these were women who worked in the industry over decades and lost out on work. And they felt that they couldn't say anything for years because he was in a position of power. And again, this this goes to the heart of everything that's been happening, all these what we've what's been revealed in the in the whole Me Too era. Yeah, these, these careers that have basically ended. You were mentioning kind of the internal conversation at CBS and how we're trying to figure that all out now in light of these accusations. Uh, what do we know so far? What was the internal conversation at CBS like? So the the board of directors, of course, there were less Moonves and CBS, the company, were sort of fighting two different battles at the same time. So there was this one with the allegations from the New Yorker magazine, these women coming forward. Concurrently, there was a separate issue where the board of CPS was actually fighting a legal suit against its controlling shareholder, a woman named Sherry Redstone, uh, her father, Sumner Redstone, who basically controlled CBS and Viacom for years. She wanted to combine those two companies. CBS didn't want that to happen, so they filed a lawsuit against her. So as that's happening, these revelations around uh, sexual harassment come to light. And so that factored in. As soon as, you know, as soon as the second story hit on Sunday, the board, they were they were alerted maybe a few days or almost a week before that, hey, the New Yorker's working on this story. They need a comment from you guys. That's when the board accelerated their move to sort of figure out, okay, how do we get less out of here uh, in a way that's hopefully amicable? So, you know, the fact that this reporting, that the New Yorker's reporting um, accelerated that is, I think, significant. It shows on one hand that the board sort of was dragging its feet earlier, but that, you know, after a second story with more women coming forward, they're like, okay, we need to deal with this. So the pressure of, of the reporting, the pressure of what became public uh, prompted them to act. All right. Journalism works. Uh, well, Edmund, yes. thank you so much for joining us this morning. Sure. Anytime. All right. All right. Well, listen, like you said, we had a lot of trash to take out. Burn it down. Now let's just have a trash fire. <laughs> let's get into it with these fire tweets. Fire! Fire! Ooh, child. Okay, you ready? I am. I saw someone tweet that they want to see some gifts of you just yelling racist. <laughs> that sounds applicable. You know, hey, I'm that. ready. I'm we'll ready. That. All right. First tweet comes from the lovely Van Newkirk. So great. My take on the Cardi thing is fighting is okay, and y'all get too worked about it most times. Yes! Yeah, okay. Don't, I get, tracks. There was so much news that was happening this weekend. Yeah. This happened. There's a part of me that's like, you know what? Let adults have a little scrap. I'm like, I'm like, I'm love like, the drama. Love a little drama. Love a shoe throw. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was all right. <laughs> I have some friends on History Twitter. That's just what I'm calling them right now. And, and and they were tweeting about like, listen, do you want to talk about the history of public fights and dueling in this country? Remember Hamilton, friends? Mm. There is such a long mm. tradition of public figures just kind of taking it out. I don't know. Yeah, man. You know, throw a shoe. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Mike Drucker, you tweeted. Found a phone sitting on a bike at the gym. Nobody around. Took it to the front desk. Man shows up. Was there a phone on this bike? I, I took it to the front. Not cool. I was using it to reserve this bike. <laughs> I've never met someone who didn't deserve anything as much as this man. Okay, let's unpack this for us. Yes, them. what a jerk. I it's like a play. Yeah, because I mean, if I saw like a phone, I would hope that someone would take it to the front desk, you know? Like if a, you see my phone or nice earbuds or anything, you, you take it to the front desk for Shout lost and found, that's really great. So that's weird, but also just that the fact like he 
just uses his phone to. None of this makes sense. Think this about how expensive like, a phone is, and you're just out here using it like a little flag marker. Also, Ashy. gym etiquette. Use the machine or don't use the machine. You're not reserving it. You can't reserve bikes, but but like I go do to it. the gym. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything. This tweet comes from Rachel Sanat. My mom sent me the link to an audiobook titled Unlearning Your Personality and suggested I give it a listen. <laughs> oh, oh, that hurts. That I won't lie. Rachel, your mom and my mom, they should get together happy. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, you tweeted, why is the first episode of every show about a pilot? Uh, screaming. That's just a good, that's a good question. Do we know anything about that, why they are, I mean, I know why they're named pilot, but like why, when that started, is it all I actually don't know. forever been that way? Did Wait, why was it? it named pilot? He'll okay. explain it to me okay. in the break. <laughs> <laughs> tweet of the day comes from Tempa. I just love this tweet so much, you ready? <laughs> You ever wonder how the fuck these videographers get this animal footage? Like, I just watched a legit battle for territory between ants. <laughs> how long was he posted up on the floor before he realized a war was gonna take place? Was he there before it started? Did he fund the war? <laughs> Questions, I mean, and if you go to that tweet, he actually has the video, and I watched a bit of it this morning, and it was riveting. I just, I just love the idea of this guy. This guy's like, oh man, what? I need some content, so I'm gonna give these ants some honey, I'm gonna back these guys financially, Let's see what happens. All right, listen, coming up, Saeed is talking to Cynthia Nixon about running for governor of New York, but up next, we're gonna go live from the district to find out what's going on down there. Great. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, guys. Hi. All right, friend, here's a tweet from the president. The Woodward book is a joke, just another assault against me in a barrage of assaults. <laughs> Using now disproven, unnamed, and anonymous sources, many have already come forward to say the quotes by them, like the book, are fiction. Democrats can't stand losing. I, I will write the real book. Oh, the real book. The real book. The real book. What do you think the title of that book would be? Russian for Beginners. Okay. <laughs> okay, Paul, uh, the book goes on sale tomorrow. I feel like we've been in the Woodward book news cycle forever now, but where are we? What, what, what is the hot point at this moment? Where are we in the cycle? I think it uh, is anger, depression, anger, denial, anger, bargaining, uh, back to anger. So still a lot of Trump just absolutely raging against this book. And it seems like you can't really brush it away in the same way that they did with uh, Fire and Fury, where they basically, like everything in this book is false. It's, I think Woodward has a bit more cachet and it's getting to Trump even more that people are gonna believe this one. Absolutely, that seems to be the case. Well, here's a tweet uh, that's just always delightful from NBC's Chuck Todd. Was there a law broken with a New York Times op-ed that, pres that President Trump wants the Department of Justice to investigate? Kellyanne Conway tells me it depends. There could be and there could not be. I don't know that and you don't know that. <laughs> it's just <laughs> one of the most absurd things I've had to read on air in a while. Um, Paul, Trump definitely doesn't seem over the New York Times op-ed as you mentioned, but can he actually call on the Department of Justice to investigate it? 
I mean, he can call on them to. Uh, he, he calls on the Department of Justice to do a lot of things. It would be obviously insane for them to actually investigate this. I mean, it is not a crime to write an op-ed for the New York Times, at least not yet. Uh, it does not look good when governments investigate or like spy on news outlets and whistleblowers. Uh, this is not Russia yet. And it would just be, I mean, it's obviously ludicrous, right? But that's, uh, it seems to be his way of, I mean, I don't know, how do you placate Trump, right? You, you just tell him like, yes, absolutely, we're going to look into this. It seems to be the usual way things like this go. Uh, but like, I don't know. I mean, in, in, in Kellyanne, I also, also saw at one point had this theory that the op-ed writer was eventually going to out themselves and tell the wrong person and would ex be exposed. But until that happens, it just seems like it's going to burrow into Trump's mind and continue to drive him crazy. I mean, I don't lie. I was a little surprised that we don't know. Like, I was kind of expecting... We yeah, expecting to maybe break over the weekend. Um, so if the DOJ probably won't investigate, is there something Trump can do or is he just blowing off steam? Like, I'm like, is he going to get a PI on this? Get a PI. <laughs> uh, it, it, it would be so outrageous for them to actually try to. I mean, I'm not even sure what they would do, but like, there's no there's no crime here. You can start spying on the New York Times, uh, but again, not a great look. And it's already been done. I mean, no, there's just really nothing they can do. He's just going to have to live with it until. And I'm with you. I thought this person would have outed themselves by now, but until the person decides they want to be a famous resistance hero and and comes out and reveals himself, there's not really anything he can he can do about it. Suck it. You have to deal with it just like we do. Um, I did want to ask about Sarah Huckabee Sanders because I, I've been... They did do something. <laughs> and they got those phones ringing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and her, her behavior in general, like I, I feel like she seems to have been a bit thrown by this. Like, even her rhetoric seems a little more Trump-esque. Trumpian, if you will. Uh, let's talk about her calling on yeah. people to call the New York Times. I mean, I saw New York Times journalists, like, posting videos of, like, their phones ringing off the hook. God. <laughs> I think from Sarah Huckabee Sanders' point of view, this was a good way to ingratiate herself to Trump, to be like, look, we're really sticking back at them. Um, I thought it was pretty petty to, <laughs> to be, it's not, I wouldn't call it doxing, I mean, it's a public number, but to, to, you know, to be encouraging people to essentially spam a media outlet that you don't like. Um, but I mean, yeah, look, people of the times, you gotta expect that this is the type of low-level annoyance you're gonna have to put up with. Uh, it's better than it's better than an actual criminal investigation. So if this is the thing that Sarah has to do to try to appease Trump. Then this is what she's what she's gonna do. I can't say I'm shocked by this development. Seems to be the word of the day, appease, kind of working around, trying to make Trump, yeah, make him feel a little better. Well, here's a tweet from the Washington Post, Josh Dossie. Ryan and McConnell bring prompts and flattery to White House to try and keep Trump from shutting down government. But Trump keeps polling advisors about what he should do, noting his conservative TV friends want a shutdown. So, Paul, are congressional leaders really worried that Trump could trigger a government shutdown? I think they are because he really could. And I mean, that story is great because it talks about how uh, I think it was Ryan bringing these like glossy photos of, of border wall construction uh, and just like uh, McConnell brought like a, an op ed from the, like, the Washington Examiner saying Trump was doing a good job, like bringing him these offerings to show him how great things are and how well everything is going. You know, it's funny, for the last few weeks, I've had people, Republicans and Democrats, uh, say to me, like, you know, no one pays attention, no one gives us press when we're doing our jobs, but we've actually been passing these appropriation bills and we've been working together and, like, actually doing what we're supposed to be doing. 
And I was like, oh yeah, I guess that's a good point. And then I thought about it. I was like, no, no, you guys are just doing that because you have a midterm coming up and the one time everything's acting functionally is because you guys want to get out there on the campaign trail and get reelected and now you're worried Trump is going to screw it up. So yeah, he could do it, but we've seen this before. At the end of the day, for as erratic as Trump is, he ultimately usually does what Republicans want him to do and Republicans really do not want him to shut down the government. I think that's where the safe money is. Okay, well... (sighs) If he were to trigger a shutdown, (laughs) on the off chance that Trump decides to, oh, I don't know, surprise us, uh, why why would he even think about that, like float that idea before midterms where, of course, he also has a lot at stake as well, not just Congress? Yeah, if Trump cares about getting Republicans in Congress reelected, then he does not shut down the government. But if Trump just cares about his own image and if he just wants to appear to be uh, fighting for the wall or screw it, if he really does deep down want that, I think it's $5 billion they're looking for for wall security and and he's got people around him saying, we can win this, we can get this, uh, then maybe he'll do it. It would absolutely screw over Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan and hundreds of other Republicans in Congress. But it is Trump. I mean, you can't rule it out. But no, from a from a normal political trigonometry point of view, it would be a ludicrous thing to do. But if Trump doesn't care about that and just cares about his own image, then eh, who knows? Maybe. You know, your 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 tone this morning is both very calming and deeply disconcerting. <laughs> okay, she's like, huh? It's our new studio. I'm so comfortable here. Normally I'm standing. I'm, right now I'm, just, I'm very relaxed. Yeah, all right. Discussing the death of a nation. The world is on fire. But, uh, okay, well, Paul, as always, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, drink your coffee, friend. See ya. Yeah, it's just prop. There's nothing in it. <laughs> side of live TV. Okay, up next, we're very excited. Cynthia Nixon is here. I'm about to sit down and have a conversation with her. Stay tuned. All right, this is The Sit Down. I'm here with Cynthia Nixon, a Democratic candidate for the governor of New York State, as you all know. Okay, we are going to start. It is very cold in the studio. It's a little chilly. <laughs> I have to admit, but I got a hot tea, and that was that was helpful. Okay, good. I, so I do want to apologize. I'm wearing a jacket for a reason. This I isn't see. just for the look. I see. I see. Uh, yeah, I mean, for mm-hmm. people who... The, the, going into the debate um, with Cuomo and just kind of raising that as an issue uh, for people who don't get why that just is at least worth mentioning the temperature. Right. I mean, one of the things about the the debate mm-hmm. was we had we had committed to two different debates very mm-hmm. early on, and mm-hmm. we kept waiting to hear from him. He committed to a third debate and had set all of the terms, all the terms. every single term of, of what the debate was going to be like. Mm-hmm. But we thought, let's let's at least weigh in on the temperature because mm-hmm. he's infamous for having the temperature at his press conferences at 60 degrees. And reporters are always complaining that they're frostbitten and they can't yeah. actually even type. That's wild. So we asked for 76. We got 69. So it was a <laughs> nice, it was a nice uh, in between. <laughs> New York state politics, I just, I can't. Well, all right. Yeah. Thank you for fighting for that. Okay, because listen, it's Because cold. look, a lot of women, I mean, it's, yeah. it, and it's, in in offices, mm. women are always freezing mm. and men don't see, men discounted. Yeah. And, Especially and if they're wearing suits and all Exactly, that. exactly. But, you know, women need to, to weigh in on, on, the, on the temperature as well. I like it, I like it. Okay, well, 
We've got to get into this tweet mm. from New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Uh, he tweeted, the mayor, mayor sent uh, by the New York Democratic Party in the 11th hour falsely attacking Cynthia Nixon is beyond unacceptable. It's downright Trumpian. Uh, a tweeted apology calling it a mistake is laughable. The state party must compensate the Nixon campaign immediately. Um, pretty wild 11th hour moment. What were your thoughts when you first found out about the mailer? Uh, I was appalled. I was really angry. I am the mother of Jewish children whose grandparents narrowly survived the Holocaust and had a lot of family who actually didn't survive. The idea that they would accuse me of being soft on anti-Semitism is an outrage. Uh, we belong to a temple. We were at services last night. Uh, you know, my kids were both bar mitzvahed. It's, it's really, as the New York Times says, this is dirty, sleazy politics at its worst. And yes, the, the, the New York State Democratic Committee has a lot to answer for, and it would be really good. This was not a mistake. A lot of people actually had to approve of this and get it together and sign off on it and create it and mail it out. But I think the idea that Andrew Cuomo didn't know that it was happening is completely bogus. And I think he actually owes an apology, not just to say it was unfortunate or a mistake or inappropriate, but it's factually wrong. It's a smear, and it's a really nasty smear at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise. This is fear-mongering for political gain at its worst, and it's completely untrue, and I'm, I'm very angry about very it. Angry. Uh, do you think Cuomo should call for Jeff Berman to resign? I think that I think whoever is responsible, yes, should 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 have to resign. But I also think that pinning it on people in the Democratic State Party mm -hmm. um, escapes the you know it, it it shifts the blame. And I think nothing th th there is no way that the mailer is being sent out without Governor Cuomo or at least his administration's complete approval. So uh, I think we don't we don't want to move the focus away from Governor Cuomo here because he actually has to take responsibility for this. Okay. Uh, speaking of uh, Mayor de Blasio, he made the decision not to endorse anyone. Uh, well, what do you make of that? I make of that that uh, Andrew Cuomo is notoriously vindictive and that Bill de Blasio has to think of the people of New York City first and foremost. And um, I, I completely understand his decision. Yeah, you do. Um, have as you've been coming up? I am sure a question that I got, and you know, I asked people on Twitter for feedback and thoughts, and a lot of people um, asked in part, you know, you're new to politics um, and running for governor as opposed to perhaps like a city uh, level position is a question that a few people had. What would you say to people who say, why aren't you running for something in the city? I would say governor? because so much of what is wrong in New York State mm -hmm. has to do with who our governor is. Mm -hmm. I have been, I've not, I'm, I'm not an Albany insider, but mm -hmm. I've actually been fighting on a lot of issues in Albany for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, Can you give an example? Yeah, sure. So I've been fighting for better school funding and particularly more equal school funding mm -hmm. for New York schools for 17 years since my oldest child entered kindergarten. Um, and I've been fighting for a lawsuit, which is like our generation's Brown versus the Board of Education, which says that the children of New York State are having their constitutional rights violated by how little is being spent, most especially in our black and brown communities, mm -hmm. on education. We, we're, we're the second most unequal state when it comes to education funding. And we are the single most unequal state 
in the entire country. And it's not just because we have Wall Street and so many wealthy people here. It's because we have such deep poverty. We have more than half the kids in our upstate cities living below the poverty line. And a city in New York, Syracuse, has the most concentrated black and brown poverty of any single city in the entire United States. And Andrew Cuomo has a lot of experience in, in, in politics and in Albany, but it doesn't actually mean he's good at governing. It doesn't mean he's good. He's not interested in addressing inequality. He's interested in giving tax breaks to corporations and the wealthiest. And there are so many instances where you look at how he is woefully mismanaged. Certainly the New York City subway. The, he has made decision after decision that has led us to this crisis in the New York City subway. Hundreds of millions of dollars in economic development money have been put in the pockets of his donors with little job creation to show. And the top members of his administration, his chief aide and his economic development czar, are headed to prison. Right. So if you're looking for somebody uh, who is good at governing, Andrew Cuomo would not be my candidate. This, this past weekend, he opened a bridge that he named after his father um, in a campaign stunt before it was ready and put New Yorkers' lives in danger. Engineers rushed in a few hours later and shut it down because it was actually a very dangerous thing to do. This, to me, is not an example of a man who's actually good at governing. Okay. You very accurately write and rightfully um, note that you were proud of the fact that you're an outsider to New York State politics, as you've and mentioned. And an outsider who's not accepting any corporate donations. Right, and that that's a strength. On the other hand, though, um, I think it's also a fair argument to be made, but wait a minute, you know, New York State politics, as you point out, notoriously corrupt, right? Yes, exactly. So how would you respond to people who say it seems a bit naive uh, entering into that space? But we've had people who've, who've run saying they were gonna clean up New York politics, mm -hmm. but they've all been creatures of Albany. They've all been part of creating that culture. And the, the, the problems that New York faces, it's not that we don't understand the solutions. Okay. It's that we don't have the political will to do it. So I would reinstate the Moreland Commission. That is something that was doing a great job rooting out corruption. It came too close to Andrew Cuomo and his donors, and he shut it down overnight. Uh, we have, we, we just don't have the political will to do these things. We have the solutions. We know where the funding needs to go in our schools. We know how to fix the New York City subway. We know how to do economic development money, uh, spend it so that it actually creates jobs by investing in infrastructure and in minority and women-owned businesses rather than giving payoffs to huge corporations. It, the, the, the question is not a matter of understanding the nuances of the problem or the complicatedness of the solution. We have the solutions. What we don't have is a governor who will fight for these solutions because he doesn't want to alienate his corporate and Republican donors. Okay. Has it been uh, challenging to uh, communicate and reach out to people in the state of New York outside of New York City. Like here, you, girl, you mentioned subways to me, and I'm like, okay, you know, that's a, that's a big deal. In some ways, easier perhaps to connect to New York City-based voters. But for people in Albany and other parts of the state, uh, have you felt that you've done a good job of bridging that gap? I do, and what I what I find is that actually New York City is so fo so focused on New York City, but across New York State. They're actually far more focused on Andrew Cuomo, and so they're far more aware of his mm. failings and far more aware that the billions of dollars that have been spent in economic development to create jobs have done a really poor, poor job of it. And particularly when you're talking about communities of color, uh, when I talk to minority and women business owners in upstate New York, mm. they say, we know this money is being spent and we can't get anywhere 
near it because it's being apportioned in an old boys club way. And transportation is an enormous issue, not just in, this, in New York City, but across the state where we have these transportation de deserts because gentrification is pushing people out. We need a much greater investment in transportation and we need New York to be a leader in renewable energy. When I'm governor, I'll pass the Climate and Communities Protection Act, which will hold corporate polluters accountable and will create 100,000 plus good jobs across the state in those parts of the state that need it most. Mm. Uh, BuzzFeed News uh, broke the story that the Human Rights Campaign, a very important LGBT organization, um, uh, did not endorse you, um, nor did Hillary Clinton. And But, but to focus on HRC, um, the organization, not the woman. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, you know, as as two queer people, yeah. what did that feel like um, to not have the support of that particular queer organization? I, it was it was not a surprise to me. Okay. Look, he's a he's a he's a two-term incumbent governor. He's a dynastic governor, son of Mario Cuomo. Mm -hmm. Every establishment endorsement that he gets. I, I, none of these came as a surprise to me. This is a people-powered campaign. This is not based on endorsement. This, this is based on reaching out to voters and speaking to them about issues, speaking to them about the economic, the the racial, the gender inequality that's swallowing our state whole, the need for making New York a real sanctuary state, which we could do. Mm -hmm. When I'm governor, on my first day, I'll sign an executive order and we'll expand access to driver's licenses for undocumented people. Mm -hmm and we'll staunch the flow of deportations. If we, if we had a governor who really cared about that as opposed to just anti-Trump rhetoric, he would have done this a long time ago. If he really cared about ending mass incarceration in this state, he would have fought for, for ending cash bail. Well before a race. Yeah. Well, yes, I mean, he paid a lot of lip service to it this year, but he didn't include it in his budget, mm -hmm. which is why the brother of Khalif Browder has endorsed me for governor. It's one of the endorsements that I'm that I'm proudest of. This was a a, a 16 year old black kid who was accused of stealing a backpack, who spent three years in Rikers, 800 days in solitary, frequently beaten by guards and other prisoners, because he didn't have three thousand dollars bail. And Governor Cuomo used Akeem and his family as props, and then didn't include Khalif's law in the budget. Uh, and this is what we see. Governor Cuomo is really great at, at grabbing headlines and appearing progressive, but when you look at the actual change that he's fought for and the actual change that he's brought, there's very little to show. Mm, absolutely. Um, and that, that BuzzFeed published that story about the human rights campaign. We didn't, we didn't break it. Um, I, I wanted to ask also about, you know, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Pressley, Andrew Gillum, uh, all candidates, you know, who were perceived as long shots, or maybe yeah. not perceived as all by like a lot of gatekeepers before their um, breakout wins. Yes. Uh, do you see yourself in a similar space? I think that we're at an incredible progressive mm -hmm. moment and the polls are not capturing it. And the media is frankly not capturing mm -hmm. it till after it happens, right? right? right. And then they're shocked mm -hmm. and excited. Mm -hmm. um, what we're seeing is, I mean, in New York State alone, in the last two years, inspired by Bernie Sanders and horrified by Donald Trump, Almost as many new Democrats have registered to vote as voted in the last gubernatorial uh, election. Almost almost 600,000. Mm. And this is what we're seeing. And the, the, this is a new kind of voter. This is a younger, more diverse, more progressive voter. And we just have to be sure that those voters know they're making a difference. Mm. They're, you know, how many, how many people-powered campaigns, how many 
people who are rejecting corporate money, people who are long shots, people of color, women, queer people are being uh, elected to office, some of them running for the first time, mm -hmm. like myself. Mm -hmm. And we just have to be sure that young people particularly don't get discouraged and we really keep turning out because what happened in the in the presidential election is not enough people turned out and we have to as a democratic party i believe really give people something to turn out and vote for not just something to vote against we have to be not just a kinder gentler more diverse version of the republican party we have to say single payer is not just a dream it can be a reality if we fight for it 100% renewable energy is a direction we need to be going. Universal rent control is something that we need to fight for. And we, the more we keep putting forth candidates that do that, 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 that will fight for those things and will distance themselves for corp from corporate money, um, the more people are going to start to believe in the Democratic Party again and turn out for us. To that point, um, we have another question from Twitter. Um, a viewer uh, wanted me to ask you about your decision not to accept the governor's salary. Um, and she said, but don't you think that it sets a bad precedent that only people who could afford uh, not to have that kind of salary could run? I think that no, I think it's an individual choice, and okay. I think, by and large, this is nothing that I would advocate for anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's I think it's important for people to be paid for the work that they do, and particularly, we really need more working class people mm -hmm. to to run for office, and that's what we're seeing with with candidates like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Ayanna Presley, and 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 so many people who are running for office for the first time. We need our our candidates to be diverse in every way, including economically. Absolutely. Here's another Twitter question um, from Karen J. Phillips. Uh, you tweeted this question, um, <laughs> Karen, since you talk about marriage and how it's affected people of color. Uh, was your weed man or woman a person of color? Was my what? <laughs> He's basically asking, was your weed dealer a person of color? My, I don't have a weed okay. dealer. Is that the, is that the question? <laughs> That's fair. That's I'm an afraid I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a smoker. I'm okay. not a smoker myself. But I think it's really important. Yeah. And I think it's really emblematic mm -hmm. of the things that we should be passing here in New York. Right without even giving it a second thought. Some eight other states have passed it, totally. the District of Columbia. Yeah. It's a racial justice issue. Yeah, and, and to that point, uh, you know, um, as we think about marijuana legalization, what would you do to ensure that people of color, black and brown people in particular, who, you know, just been devastated uh, by the war on drugs, that they would be included in a legalized marijuana industry in New York? Well, so I think we should look to what they're doing in Oakland, California, what mm -hmm. they're doing in Massachusetts, and I think we should, mm -hmm. we should build on those models mm -hmm. that half the licenses should be reserved to be prioritized for individuals and communities that have been the most targeted by the war on drugs, and not just the licenses themselves, mm -hmm. but small business loans and other supports. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. It can't just be people like John Boehner, you know, right. white wealthy <laughs> capitalists like John Boehner yeah, are getting absolutely. rich from this. Yeah. But we also have to ensure, you know, we're going to be seeing tens of, of, of millions of dollars in state's revenue. And I think that also needs to be put back into the community in terms of education, in terms of job training, in terms of, uh, we, we need to get people out of uh, prison who are there for marijuana arrests, and I and we need to expunge their records. And I think this tax revenue should also be used to help 
transition out of prison and, and back into into regular life. Absolutely. Important part of the conversation. Yeah. Cynthia Nixon, thank you so much for joining thank us you. this and morning. Thank you. And I just want to really say, you know, the election is Thursday, September 13th. September 13th. In New York. If you're a registered voter, please turn out and vote and, you know, know that you have a, a progressive alternative here and we can make New York the capital of the resistance, not, not let California keep getting all the glory. Oh, okay. All right. You have it there, folks. Cynthia, thank you again so thank much. Thank you so much. September 13th. 13th. Get there. Thursday. All right. Stay tuned. More AM to DM in a moment, friends. Thank you again. Thank you. You're getting sleepy, very sleepy. Now wake up, because according to BuzzFeed News, we are learning a lot about, and I am not joking here, hypnosis. And BuzzFeed News science reporter Dan Vergano is here to walk us through it. Dan, good morning. Hey, good morning, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing pretty okay, but I'm, I'm a little fascinated by this. So what actually happens when you're hypnotized? Uh, nobody actually quite knows for certain. Uh, it does seem to be like a state of deep relaxation where some people are uh, very susceptible to suggestions. Uh, people have argued about it for two centuries, exactly what's going on. Uh, it's clear it's a, it is a different state of consciousness uh, than normal. Uh, but exactly what part of the brain is doing the is pulling the trigger there is is what uh, researchers are trying to get at. Is what researchers are actually trying to get at. So that means it's actually more than say just a parlor trick. Um, is there something folks can do to make themselves more or less susceptible to hypnosis? Uh, I mean, the main thing is to be in a setting where you're conditioned culturally to, I'm gonna be hypnotized. You're in a cold, uh, cool doctor's office in the kind of place where it seems like you might be hypnotized in. Uh, there's some studies suggesting that um, uh, transcranial uh, magnetic stimulation and uh, the forebrain will make you uh, more likely, they disrupt the thinking part of your brain and so you'd be more likely to go into relaxation. There's some other studies saying sensory deprivation tanks condition people to uh, be more hypnotizable. That's incredible. All right, so, so how fast can a person get hypnotized? And like, could I be trained to like do some killer like yep. moves while I was hypnotized? Uh, no, no such luck. Uh, about 10% of the population, broadly speaking, seems to be easily hypnotizable. Uh, if you, you probably can be hypnotized. Uh, the whole thing is really context uh, dependent. So you can Tell somebody in a doctor's office, you know, you'll feel less anxiety when you are done here. But like, you're gonna go, you know, um, jump off of a, you know, a train onto a moving car, you know, like the movies. Yeah, that's the wrong context. That ain't a doctor's office. So it's, it's, uh, there ain't nobody making a killer assassins in, in the hypnotist's office, it turns out. Okay, so I can't jump off trains onto cars. That's good to know. What can you tell me about the clever... You try. <laughs> All right, Dan. What can you tell me about the clever... I don't suggest it. And Please don't that do that. Involved. All viewers, don't. don't. I won't. Yeah. I won't. I won't. What can you tell us about the clever hands test? So the clever hands test is this um, psychological experiment uh, that's designed to get at whether the subconscious is pulling the trigger for the conscious part of you. Uh, it, and what it is, is a, is a random trivia test with yes and no answers. And the answers vary from uh, easy, like does a triangle have three sides, to uh, difficult. Uh, did Alfred Hitchcock ever eat meat? 
Um, and the idea is, the trick is, you're supposed to answer these completely randomly. You're not supposed to pay any attention to whether the answer is yes or no, uh, which is really hard for people. It's like asking people to drive randomly without hitting a building. Um, you ask them these questions and they try as hard as they can and they cannot do a 50-50 yes, no, whatever pattern over time. Uh, and the idea here is they're getting it, um, the unconscious part of your brain that pulls the trigger on the way you answer things. Uh, so you give them some kind of therapeutic intervention, in this case hypnosis, and you see how well it uh, knocks out the, the way the unconscious just makes you answer these corrections, these questions rather correctly. Uh, and so that was, was done in some recent research that we highlighted in the article to see if hypnosis could wipe out uh, this, this semi-conscious uh, impulse to always answer these questions as correctly as well as you can, not being able to just do the 50-50 randomly. Okay, uh, and you also just mentioned that, like, like you were saying before, it's not going to help with like training to maybe become an assassin. But what are some other places that scientists believe we could make hypnosis useful? Well, it does seem useful uh, in terms of reducing anxiety and also very useful in, for pain. So it's a it's a regular therapeutic intervention with psychologists uh, for treating those things. The evidence for things like quitting smoking much more equivocal. Uh, but uh, uh, the research that we highlighted is really scientists still trying to grapple with exactly what the hell's going on in people's heads when they're hypnotized, uh, whether it's a, a higher form of concentration up here or whether it's really something going on in the subconscious when you're hypnotized. So the benefits, we hope, is we can figure out which of those things it is and that can tell us how to better quell uh, things like anxiety and depression and, uh, and especially pain. It'd be great to have a pain treatment with hypnosis. Absolutely. All right, well, listen, a lot of investigation still happening, but before we go, I want to try and hypnotize you, Dan. So if you could look straight into the camera there, straight into the camera, I've got this All very right. fancy pocket watch. Focus on the pocket watch, relax oh, wow. as you watch it go yeah, side cool. to side. And when I snap my fingers, oh, yeah. you are going to admit okay. that you believe in astrology. So nothing. Do you believe in astrology? Not Wait, did I actually hit that? Okay. Not even a little. Well, I had to it's try. It's all nonsense, yeah. Thank you, Dan, so much. Hypnosis, maybe something to it. Astrology, still nonsense. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Don't go away. Up next, Stephanie is talking to skincare mogul Tata Harper. Here's a tweet from my colleague, Anne Helen Peterson. After watching my Twitter feed turn into a skincare discussion board over the last year, I finally bought some expensive shit. I can't tell you how furious I am that it's as good as everyone said. <laughs> well, I'm joined, now, <laughs> I'm joined now by Tata Harper, founder and CEO of Tata Harper Skincare Company. Tata, thank you so much. Ooh, no, thank you guys for inviting me. So fun. Of course, so fun. So obviously we spend our whole day on Twitter here and you can't go, it seems, anywhere on the internet, Twitter included, without seeing people talk about skincare. So mm -hmm. how involved are you in skincare discussion on social media? I am not directly involved, but I say I would say that I am like in the background sort of a lot of the discussions that we lead in our social platform. So 
we tend to focus a lot on education like that's kind of like the discussions that we like to have especially because we are a product company you know like we're not like a really like a marketing company we're a product focused company where we have so much stories to tell even with our own products like ingredients from 60 countries from around the world latest technologies from all over um, how to use products on your skin I think that that's another thing that we've been getting more and more into is like how do you layer products depending on your concerns not necessarily your skin type but your specific concerns and uh, what are the products that are right for you how often should you mask and so on and also getting a bit into ingredients because there's this new wave of like skin intellectuals let's say that you know women and men that just love ingredients they just really love to know, you know, like what it, what wor what works for what, you know, like what's the latest and greatest, which is so fun. That's one of the things that I like the most about what I do is how chatty it is. You know? Yeah, I mean, there's people on skincare addiction who I think are just normal gals like you or I, <laughs> but seem to have like a PhD in chemistry from the way they talk about different ingredients. So and it's and it's great. I'm sorry to cut you up, no, but it's no. great that that happens because I feel that a lot of times we just blindly buy a lot of things that we don't really understand what's in them because we are afraid of reading labels and it's like what does all this unpronounceable really mean? Like I love that people are now actually taking an effort to learn and get knowledge about what they're actually buying. You know, it's like, has your company changed anything in your formulations or anything because of something you've seen on skincare social media? Uh, well, we are starting to pay attention to the conversation on essential oils because we, you know, we are a skincare brand that uses many botanicals, including essential oils. And I feel that it's been like such so sad what's happening with them because they're so great for your skin and they're getting this bad rap like if they were the only allergen around when there's allergen, you know, where a lot of things have allergens, retinol, acids, like people react to many substances. So we are becoming more and more aware of what's happening and we are also reacting on the formulation side of things and being, well, maybe let's, you know, reduce this percentages of this. Let's make sure that we're not including any of this major allergens and some of the things that people react the most to, you know, because nowadays it's hard to make something for everybody. But definitely there's a couple of things that, you know, that are known and they're more known than others and they might be great to reduce wrinkles, but they increases the chances of people reacting to them so we're taking we've been like in the last I would say like 20 months like taking a deep look into all of that and, and reacting from a formulation standpoint you one of the cornerstones of your brand is you use products that are all you know very green very natural and one of the big themes of skincare Twitter is kind of going back to basics, doing things that are good for you with self-care and things that, you know, taking out all these harsh chemicals and stuff. And that's obviously a huge part of your brand as well. I want to ask you though, your famous moisturizer is $185. So how do you balance the fact that everyone does deserve to have nice, natural, skincare with the fact that unfortunately these products are really expensive. <laughs> I know. Listen, we struggle with this a lot. I, we try to make it as affordable as we can. 
but the reality is that we don't formulate or make products for the girl that like to keep it simple like we really don't embrace those philosophies of like what the majority of the other skincare lines do that it's like you know one or two ingredients it's all gentle it's all simple it's for the my minimal girl we don't formulate for the minimal girl we formulate for the maximalist the woman that it's looking to replace her super high-tech European skincare with something that it's as advanced and as concentrated but completely non-artificial so to be able to include that level of technology that level of ingredients and the quantity of ingredients because we don't I know that we're used to seeing like oh this is my shea butter moisturizer and my collagen eye, eye mask and we all of those ingredients are in a in, in a blend for us like it's one of 48 you know what I mean so that $185 moisturizer has 46 actives not just hyaluronic acid but 45 more other you know other extracts that are giving you tons of moisturization and that help in many other ways your skin so that's why our products are what they cost and then on top of that we don't farm out the production of our products you know like we don't outsource the production of our products like the majority of the other skincare lines we make it ourselves because I believe that it's the most important part of your business and that even though it's a common practice among skincare brands I don't feel that it's the right thing to do to outsource the most important part of your business so we make it by hand fresh every month in my farm in Vermont and from there we ship directly to our clients whether that's stores or our direct clients like we're not dealing with like the contractor that makes the goop and then the filler that fills the goop and then the packager and then the distributor like all of that adds like a, on top of that it adds extra expenses and then you can't add them back to your products then also that adds like six months and I don't want to have a product that it's six months arriving to a store either. So it's like all of those little things that we do in the background, they just really add up expenses, you know, and it's 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 really as affordable as I can see. I, I because I know everything that it's in the products, I feel that it's like such a great value. It's like the difference of, of buying like an Apple computer that comes built in with every possible application and, uh, and system that you want and then all of a sudden buying a stripped down version of that. By the time that, you know, in order to get the same benefits of one or the other, you would have to buy so many things and then at the end of the day, that will be more expensive for you. So that's how I see it. It's like with this one moisturizer, you're buying probably like in terms of amount of ingredients that are in the products, probably like five or six. And we're giving you for a marginal, you know, for a percentage uptake from what, you know, from what a normal, you know, mid-range moisturizer is. So, and on top of that, it's completely synthetic free for real, because we are completely committed to skincare that it's beautiful and that has beautiful ingredients in them and not ingredients that belong in cars and in machines, you know? Because that's what we end up, then, then, that, then that's the shortcut. That's how you get those price points. Like, okay, let's add petroleum, let's add propylene glycol, that it's antifreeze. Like, I don't, that's, you know, my girl's not looking for that level of ingredients. She wants higher quality ingredients that are beautiful and that are going to make her skin beautiful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, taking taking a little detour from skincare specifically, mm-hmm. you had a successful career as an industrial engineer before you became a skincare mogul. So oh you know, <laughs> <Mogul>. obviously, <laughs> uh, this series is is meant to impart wisdom for other women who are looking to be successful in their careers. Do you have advice for any women on who may be looking to make a switch career wise, or who are feeling stuck and don't really know where to go to follow their dream? Yeah, a couple of things, you know. Number one is that sometimes, especially if you're trying to do something innovative and no one else has done, obviously every expert is gonna tell you that you're crazy, you know, that it's impossible, that it can't be done because there are experts on doing it a certain way. So I feel that more than expert, like experts are good so that you can get advice on how it's done, but then you need to go back and reassess how that applies really to you, you know, and to the business that you want to create. So I would just say, take it with a grain of salt, listen to experts and listen how it's done and then figure out how from there, what can you learn about what you maybe don't want to do. In my case, when I hired a beauty consultant and many beauty consultants, explain to me how the beauty industry works it taught me everything that I did not want to do (laughs) you know which it was so hard because you're like oh my god I'm paying this woman and you know and it's so much money and she's telling me exactly how to do it and my gut is telling me that I need to do it differently so just really pay attention to your gut feelings and really surround yourself with people that believe in you you know, not necessarily experts, but people that believe in you because I am an industrial engineer, never thought that I would become a beauty entrepreneur, but I did it because I was, you know, I had this passion for being able to provide people an alternative that was different than anything that was out there. You know, like what I created was not never been done. It was all very like simple, low quality products that were like in dusty shelves of supermarkets. Like that was like the natural scene when I began. It was pretty depressing. So to be able to do something really innovative, you need to kind of like also break it down to pieces and assemble a team that really believe in the vision and that because I am a firm believer that anyone can make anything happen you know when you have the right motivation and when you have the right passion and then lastly is do something that it's different that what it's out there and especially today I feel that probably it's more relevant that you do something that makes people's lives better you know which is like one of the things that I love the most about my being Tata Harper is that I'm just not making a moisturizer I'm making a moisturizer that makes people's lives better because they are not exposing their bodies to all of this pollutants like how they you know like how chemical dumping pollutes the earth that's what happens when we put all these chemicals in our body in our largest organ they're polluting us so um, so it's great to have out there a product that you know that really delivers and that also like gives people uh, a, a great experience you know because all this botanical smell amazing so it's like a great self her moment that people get motivated to use the products and you know and that you know that you're contributing to the overall health of people yeah great for sure well it's definitely something we would all aspire to to make people taste better tata thank you so much for joining me thank you guys more amc dm is up next summer solstice you tweeted Watching follow this on Netflix and was today years old when I first heard the term Afrovivalist. Black survivalists who prepare for all types of disasters. This really gives you logical things to consider. We have a clip of that follow this episode, Black Survivalist. Let's take a look. So when did you get involved in survivalism as a, as a lifestyle uh, habit or choice? 
It was in my 30s where I thought, you know, I probably should get back to my roots and start preparing. Right after Katrina, I started taking it seriously because of the fact that people were suffering and not prepared. And I said, that's not gonna be me. And so that's where Afrovivalist comes in to help encourage people of color to start preparing and to teach them what they need to do to survive. Because a lot of us think our government is gonna take care of us. And I'm like, no, don't think that. Like, no, don't think that. Here to talk about black survivalists is Bim at a one-man culture writer at BuzzFeed News. First off, shout out to the hair. Welcome, Bim. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. How are you this morning? <laughs> I'm fine. I have silver hair now as opposed to the red in that uh, film. But yeah, I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm not prepared, but I'm fine. You, uh, let me tell you, the hair is, is looking amazing. <laughs> so, so who are, what are black survivalists? Okay, so obviously everyone I think is kind of familiar with the idea of preppers and survivalists. These are people who kind of um, stockpile all sorts of things, food, um, all sorts of materials, weaponry, everything in the event of a catastrophe, whether that be human made or natural. Mm. So they're basically people who prepare. Um, and there are different kind of ideas about what this means. A lot of the time people think about preppers as kind of like ex-military, kind of like, you know, white dudes with guns, yeah, right? Because yeah, that's, that's what I think of. But that's the popular culture idea. And I think for the most part, that is definitely true. But black survivalists exist within that same, you know, same universe, same idea of preparing against the worst. Um, and the thing is that they're, they're, the people I spoke to for this documentary generally were worried that the government being what it is and what it has been historically for them means that they have to prepare. It's, it's more a matter of actual survival as opposed to like a fantasy about, you know, kind of like surviving the last days of Earth or whatever. Like it's very much a case of the government will not come for me, so I need to come for myself. Living without a safety net. Right. So what interests you in this subject? Well, I, I'm someone who, okay, I wrote about this, uh, it's live now on BuzzFeedNews.com. Good, but plug, I was, good plug. Thank you. But I was, uh, I was writing about this, I was interested in this because I have a very fundamental belief that I would not survive the apocalypse. Um, one of my favorite shows <laughs> is The Walking Dead, and I always joked, and I meant it, but it wasn't really a joke, that I wouldn't even make it to the pre-credit sequence. Like, I'd be one of the zombies. Like, I, I just wouldn't. I have no <laughs> Skills. I cannot swim, I cannot drive, I cannot even ride a bicycle. And I was very clear of kind of like, well, it'd just be a very quiet death for me. Like, all right, well, good, 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 you know, I had a good run, let's end this. So I was kind of like, let me see the people who are taking steps, who do have these skills, who can do all these things. And then I met Afrovivalist, a friend of her, a friend of mine mentioned her to me and was like, have you heard about this woman? And I was like, no, and she showed me the website. So shout out to Tahira who told me about Afrovivalist. And then we went to meet her and she was, you know, interesting. She, a lot of, you know, it's very easy to roll your eyes, mm -hmm. but then you kind of sit with her and you're like, well, actually, um, you know, the thing that got me interested was just this idea of someone who was happy to talk about it, but also was taking it very seriously. It's not like mm -hmm. a game to her. No, absolutely like, this is not. serious, yeah. And that comes across uh, kind of in the documentary. Uh, what was it like to, to sit with Afrovivalists? You guys gutted a turkey, you were yeah. shooting bow and arrow. Yeah. Did you feel like you were learning things? As Like, do you think you could maybe make it like three seconds into the opening sequence now? A solid three minutes. Ooh, yeah. okay. Thank you very I much. I like that ambition. Yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, okay. Thank you very much. Three minutes, three full minutes post-apocalypse. Um, I did learn some stuff. I think, you know, the idea of, I think about the ways in which we think about disaster and the reality, of course, is that for many African Americans and people in other communities, there has been 
an idea of self-reliance for so long anyway because they have histories of being neglected. Um, I think the thing that I found very interesting was so many people spoke about Hurricane Katrina mm. and talking very specifically as that being a big turning point for them. That was the point I wish they thought, if I don't do this, no one will because the government won't. And it's very much, you know, I quote Kanye West back in the day, you know, back in 2005, George Bush doesn't care about black people. That's a thing that people are thinking of, this idea that we're going to be left behind because already without the disaster, we're already being left behind in the event of ridiculous circumstances, even more so, mm -hmm. it would be more of the same, but like exacerbated on a massive scale because of the emergency nature of such a catastrophe. So that was the thing that kept coming back to me, was Katrina was a thing that they kept just kind of mentioning. I said, this is, this, that was a galvanizing point for so many of the black purpose I spoke to. Yeah, and in documentary, they're also talking about uh, Puerto Rico and kind of more current right. things right. where we're watching the, colla the collapse of government support. Right. Um, what was it like? Because you did, you talked to Afro-Vivalists, you were out in the woods, and then you took a training course here in the city. Yes. Uh, what, what did you learn about kind of urban survivalism? Well, I'll tell you this. People stare at you when you're doing drills in Times Square because <laughs> <laughs> there was a point when he's talking about what it's going to be like, and you're just kind of like, and he's, he has like a full speaking voice. So Aton Edwards is the guy I spoke to, and he's kind of like, yeah, there's going to be debris, human debris. And I was like, mm-hmm, sure. Like, <laughs> good to think about, right. good to but think it, about. But I kept thinking, you know, you've got to remember, if this was a blah, 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 blast, there would be the trees, and there'd be human, and you have to grab on, you make sure you this. And I was like, uh-huh. My eyes were just wide the whole time. So I was learning a lot about that. But also, again, like you said, people are talking about Hurricane Maria, Hurricane um, that happened in... Uh, Houston, in tech, all this, people are very, very worried. And that was the thing, because afterwards we went to like a meeting, like, like a community meeting in Brooklyn, and people were coming up and saying stuff, people who had family in Puerto Rico, people who had family in Texas, just talking about the after effect of being left behind, mm -hmm. and that idea about readying up. So Aton is really concerned about self-reliance and about making sure that everyone has tools within their community. So a lot of what he was doing was like teaching you how to purify water using found objects and how to prepare a gas mask with found objects. So it, because again, the barrier to entry for survivalism is often quite high. Right. You have to be rich in order to afford gas, gas masks and you know a bunker and blah, blah, blah. And he's kind of like, cool. In the meantime, here's how you make it out of a bottle of like soda. Here's how to ready up. How to on, ready up. On a budget and be prepared. I, I wanted to ask you one last question before I let you go. Mm. Do you have a go bag now? I do. Do you, do you have a ready bag? Afrovivalist made me a bug out bag. Bug out, that's, yeah, that's, exactly. Use the correct term. I apologize, Thank I apologize. You. But I do have a bug out bag and it's in my hallway closet and I, I literally every time I put on my jacket I'm just like maybe we'll see each other soon bag because you don't know I mean, that's the whole point. Big, that makes know. me so happy to hear, because <laughs> I also talk to my go bag. So glad that we're, we're on the same level with oh, that God. now. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. You can watch, follow this on Netflix. Don't miss Bim's episode. Uh, and listen, we just tweeted out the uh, piece that she wrote Thank as you. well. Up next, we're reading your tweets. Thanks. Let's just go down the timeline real quick. Okay. Ugh, Bim, you look so freaking good with silver hair. Bim, Bim's skin is flawless. Seeing Bim on TV just feels so right. Yeah. Uh, just a million tweets about how awesome Bim is on television. Accurate. I'm telling you. No her. Watch the follow this thing on, on no Netflix. Her. It's it's really incredible. It really turned out incredibly well. I'm so excited to watch that episode and read her piece. I love Bim's writing. I love Bim. But also the, the topic is just it's really interesting. It was so fun to open up Netflix and just see Bim like at the top in the share image, giant bow and arrow, like doing a Legolas. Mm -hmm. Doing a Legolas action. Oh, is was, that how you say it? Legolas? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Oh. I read more than I talk. I, well, I thought you honest. were going to say like Katniss Everdeen. Oh, very nice. All right. We yeah. got all anyway, the references today. We love you, Bim. Nerd. I love you, Bim. <laughs>
Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, after my conversation with Cynthia Nixon, that was cool. That it, was, it was such a great conversation. I, I, you know, I, it's like interviewing someone, I was like, I just stay focused. But then I was like, I'm having a conversation with Cynthia Nixon. She could be governor. It could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. it's just incredible. Well, uh, Eileen Bell, you said Cynthia Nixon talking about upstate and black and brown poverty in Syracuse. Yes, Cynthia, talk about all of the issues. I felt like she was so on. She came ready to play. I felt like the interview, you were asking, you were not pulling punches, you were asking really good questions, and she came with facts, with knowledge. It was really interesting to kind of sit there and and especially to see her bring up these topics that we don't see discussed nearly enough. And I'll say this, Politicians are very irritating to interview. They are, they, they are. They're really frustrating to interview because they don't answer questions. They're enti- like Oprah has said this, like she's talked about, like politicians are the hardest people to interview because their entire job is like to hijack a moment and, and take it. And so I will say for Cynthia Nixon, she answered the questions. Mm. Uh, and, and that goes a long way for me. Also made a 69 nice joke and also was like, hey, Did actually, for, oh yeah. Oh, the I was like in the blue space, okay. I'll, I'll talk to you about it afterwards. <laughs> uh, also, I just like that. Uh, she was like, listen, I don't have a weed guy. All right, she just came with it. Oh, All right, we asked for your favorite John Legend performances. Amanda says, Headband of the Day song is his best performance. There are no questions about this. I like it. Yeah? Singing the song with Chrissy's instrument. You like, like just a little bit of this? Headband of the Day. All right. Yeah, I do feel like I will, <laughs> I will say, uh, as someone who grew up with music in the household, one of the joys of being around just incredibly talented musical people is that they're singing and all the time, humming in the melodies, and I, I think that's kind of cool. Weird, when I start singing, you don't seem into it at all. I said talent. All right, uh, <laughs> we asked for more of your thoughts about Serena Williams. This is what Mrs. Smith had to say. Honestly, it seems like the tennis powers that be are punishing Serena for the audacity to come back after having a child. Audacity mm. feels like a really helpful word in mm-hmm. terms of this, the nerve, right? You're acting unbecoming. All of that seems to me to be like a coded, like you are getting a little bigger than your britches. Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100%. I also, I just saw on the timeline, I didn't realize that the fines had already come out and that they'd already been enacted Oh yeah, well. it's crazy. It's like just when I'm like, okay, we're back, we're calm, we're da da da, something else, you know, that stupid racist cartoon comes up. It's just, it's deep, it's interesting, right? Like, you know, someone, I'm not an avid tennis fan, but it is so interesting how potent it is and it's just become a part of, of the discourse. The only thing that hasn't happened yet, we're gonna knock on this little wood part of the set, is that Trump hasn't tweeted about Serena yet. Oh God. All right. You Get us out of here listen, before he does. Black survivalists, stay ready. Okay, thank you to all of our guests today. Of course, Cynthia Nixon, mm. Julian White, Edmund Lee, Stephanie McNeil, Dan Vergano, Paul McLeod, Bim Adewamme, and Tata Harper. That was absolutely a great conversation. We'll be back here 10 a.m. tomorrow. Good luck on your Monday, folks. You got this. We'll see you next time. You want to give a little shimmy? Want to give a little shimmy? Hocus pocus. <laughs>